The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I invite you now to turn in your Bible to the Minor Prophet of Amos in chapter 3 as we continue on in this mini-series. As I, as I think about the prophet Amos, I, I can't help but think about someone like Representative Paul Ryan, uh, who has made news in recent months bringing a charge, a challenge to the American culture and our government to uh, face up. Uh, to mounting and unsustainable debt levels. Well, Amos, the humble shepherd, in a like manner, is bringing a very unwelcome message to uh, the people of Israel, to the north of Judah. These are a people who, as Dr. Light mentioned last week, enjoy great prosperity at this time. Uh, They were uh, wealthy and uh, were enjoying peace at a time when the Assyrian Empire was not... Uh, moving as fast and as dangerous as it had been in, re- in pr- prior decades. And uh, there's a grave problem in Israel of hypocritical religion, of, uh, of people ignoring and blind to the message of judgment. Well, as we learned last week, within one generation of this time, in the middle of the 8th century B.C., the entire nation of Israel would be gone, completely swallowed up by the rising, roaring lion that was the Assyrian Empire. So tonight we pick up in chapter 3, continuing on with this judgment oracle, and we, we find a message of, of the prophetic prerogative of God, who, who is perfectly free to judge his own people. And yet we do find in this grave passage of judgment a glimmer of hope that he will spare a remnant to spread his glory and expand his purposes on earth. Please listen to chapter 3 as we, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Amos writes, Hear this word the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when he has no prey? Does he growl in his den when he has caught nothing? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground where no snare has been set? Does a trap spring up from the earth when there is nothing to catch? When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. 
who hoard plunder and loot in their fortresses. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun the land. He will pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd saves from the lion's mouth, only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved. Those who sit in Samaria on the edge of their beds and in Damascus on their couches. Hear this. And testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. The Lord God Almighty, on the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed, and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. This is the word of our holy and mighty God. Let us pray. Father, this grim and dreadful passage reminds us how awesome and holy and just you are. But we know that even in the midst of judgment, you are gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. We pray that you might indeed give us a heart of wisdom as we explore this text tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in recent months, we have seen a a string of devastating natural disasters, uh, some of which uh, surpass anything that many Americans have seen on our soil and living memory. 340 victims fell on the pathway of 312 tornadoes across the south of the U.S. on April 27th. This past week, we've seen the swollen waters of the Mississippi River threaten the city of Memphis and all kinds of riverside communities downward along the uh, floodplains in Mississippi River Delta. We've observed officials, homeowners, business owners, uh, watching nervously as wondering whether or not the levees would hold back uh, these swollen torrents uh, of great uh, amounts of water. And it wasn't all that long ago that we saw in the news how our neighbors across the Pacific Ocean in Japan Uh, suffered suffered such a devastating tsunami as a result of the March earthquake off its shores. Various natural disasters come with various warning signs. Sadly, tornadoes often come with very little warning, leaving people with little recourse to find secure shelter. Thankfully, the massive flood in the Mississippi give people some advance warnings, but in some parts of the country in low-lying areas, flash floods can be a a life-threatening danger. Well, thankfully, when it comes to matters like earthquakes, there are new technologies that can give some advanced warning. In fact, Japan has the most advanced early warning system in the world. As many of you know, Japan is is one of the most uh, earthquake-threatened nation on earth. Back in 2007, the Japanese... Uh, launched a nationwide system that uh, detects tremors, analyzes the epicenter of a coming earthquake, and is able to send out warnings across over 1,000 seismographs that are scattered across that great nation. And thankfully, in the, Mar- the Great March earthquake, many, many lives of the Japanese were spared as, as students at school had advance notice from their professors on their handheld devices to take cover under desks. 
people in, in rickety buildings were able to get out in time to get out from uh, out in the, in the open. Of course, people who were in low-lying lands were able to climb to higher ground to avoid being swept away uh, by the tidal waves. But, but sadly, there were many, many Japanese, as we've seen in the news, who did not benefit from this newer technology. And in some measure may have suffered from the failures of officials who failed to respect a much older and much less sophisticated warning system. You may have seen this in pictures in in the news that uh, show all across the the low-lying floodplains of Japan a number of stone monuments, some that are centuries old, of, of Japanese survivors of past tsunamis who established these monuments to forewarn their descendants of, of where, to, where to build and where to stay away from uh, vulnerable territories that were subject to uh, the great tsunamis of the past. Well, it's only human nature to want to warn their fellow peoples and future peoples of coming danger. Well, we see this in the very heart of God, who, who labors to warn his people of com- the coming danger of judgment. We see in the prophet Amos a, a kind of low-tech warning system as God raises up the Jewish Hebrew prophets to warn God's people of coming judgment. And sadly, in Amos's day, his message of threat fell upon deaf ears. You see, a warning system can only be as effective as the people are willing to listen and to take action in response. The Lord had made his message very, very clear from the days of Moses, given in the law, revealing through his prophets his plans to bring judgment in response to his people's idolatry, immorality, and injustice. Well, like their forefathers, the people in Amos's day had forsaken the Lord, going after idols, and consequently submitting themselves to grave immorality and gross injustice. But friends, you and I, if we would humble ourselves, we must admit that we too have a call to listen and to heed the Lord's warning, to ta- take action and flee from the coming wrath. Well, for us in our generation... The Lord offers us hope that the Sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The Lord was under no obligation, but rather obligated himself to make known his will to his people through his messengers, the prophets. Like a tender and faithful husband making known his plans and his purposes to his bride. The Lord is like, he's also like a just magistrate who makes very clear his expectations and the consequences for failure of his people to obey his commands. So we see here that we have a God who desires to be known both by what he does and by what he has said. And we also realize that we as a, as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people who have been called out of this world to declare the praises of him who called us into the light, we have a calling to listen and to heed the message of the Lord. Our God is not aloof. 
He is not uncaring. He is not far removed from us. He is the God who has come near to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who lived and walked amongst us. Jesus demonstrated great compassion. And not only healing people's diseases, but speaking with great earnestness, warning them to flee the coming wrath, proclaiming to them very clearly the only way of escape, trusting in him alone for their salvation, believing upon him and his saving work. Well, like Jesus, the good shepherd prophet who had come long after him, Amos, in our text, confronts the pride of the people Israel, of their grave sins, promising that God's punishment would fall upon him. And we see in, the, in these uh, verses that this punishment is both predictable and probing, both predictable and probing. In verses 3 through 6, Amos offers us a string of rhetorical questions that are intended to indict and awaken the people out of their spiritual slumber, that they might take action and avoid the coming danger. Any, any sane person would be able to accurately predict the outcomes of these following situations, of a lion with his prey, of a bird falling into a trap, of the people responding to the trumpet sound as a city was threatened by invaders. In the same way, the judgment of God was clearly predictable. Because our God is a personal God. He is a holy God who expects both relationship and righteousness from his people who are called by his name. Verses 9 and 10 rebuke the nation of Israel for their oppression of the poor and their greedy accumulation of wealth. Consequently, in verse 11, Amos prophesies that an enemy will overrun them, speaking of the coming Assyrian invasion pulling down their defenses and plundering the great wealth they have amassed for themselves within their great houses. Several references here to mansions and houses uh, that had an accumulation of great wealth and plunder. And then at the very end of of chapter 3, in verses 14 and 15, Amos confronts the religious hypocrisy of a people who set up false altars to worship false gods, to worship in their own right, and also confronts them for their indulgence, the, the luxury that they enjoy at the expense of others. So, just as the behavior of idolaters was predictable, so the just judgment of God was predictable as it was hanging over the heads of the Israelite peoples. Well, just as we've noted that the punishment of God was predictable, we also find, and echoing what Dr. Light said last week, it's very probing that the message of judgment goes deeper than the surface level, goes deep into the issues of the heart, like Jesus, who would come centuries later after Amos. Amos penetrates into the deep inner places of our hearts to reveal at least these three things that we find in our text. Our self-deception our self-righteousness, and our self-sufficiency. First, self-deception. I believe that we can characterize self-deception as having at least three dangerous qualities, presumption, blindness, and entitlement. Amos's message, as Pastor Light mentioned last week, would have come as a great shock to its original audience in the northern tribes of Israel. 
They were more than glad to hear the message of judgment that would fall upon their pagan neighbors, who were guilty of great crimes against humanity. They were likely quite smug to hear Amos chastising their self-righteous half-brothers to the south in Judah, who had forsaken God's law. But it's these charges of injustice and immorality and idolatry that wiped the smug grins off their faces. Israel was guilty of being presumptuous as God's chosen people, assuming that they would be spared judgment to come. They simply assumed that God would overlook their minor faults in keeping with his promise to their forefather Abraham. But contrarily, quite the opposite was true. Because Israel was called to be a holy nation, because they were a chosen people, they were held to a much higher standard for judgment. And so sadly, presumption among the people led to apathy, a people living for self rather than the glory of the Lord. I believe we can... uh, draw some conclusions from this area of self-deception and presumption. The root of these heart issues is a deep pride. And sadly, pride can lead to spiritual blindness. We, in our pride, think more highly of ourselves than we ought. It can establish a kind of spiritual facade of self-image. Insecure hearts that are not resting in Christ for their identity and their security have this effect of hardening against the Lord. Such a heart becomes covered with self-protecting layers of worldly thinking and falsehoods. Such pride blinds us that we fail to see ourselves as the weak and needy creatures, that we truly are desperate for God's mercy. And such Hearts in the dark lie cold and exposed before the approaching day of God's wrath. Friends, we have to admit that we live in a culture of presumption and spiritual blindness. Scores of people, maybe even a majority of Americans, profess to believe in Christ, profess some adherence to the Christian faith. But can you match belief and behavior with what the scripture teaches? Like a woman who wears way too much makeup. Or or a man who wears a really bad toupee to cover up their flaws. So people are self-deceived and fooling nobody but themselves. God sees past all of our pretense and knows our hearts. Who is truly trusting in him alone for salvation. Well, then another sign of such false trust is an entitlement mentality. Like I'm sure many of you in uh, recent months, uh, I I was angry when I observed in the news angry mobs of union workers storming the capital of Wisconsin demanding entitlement benefits. It seems that we have a culture that is addicted to entitlements, enjoying a lifestyle that they have not earned. I hear the voices coming in our culture and and from people around in a kind of a self-pity accusing others 
for not bailing them out, for leaving them in a a beggarly state. But friends, you and I can so easily pass judgment upon others. How are you and I also guilty of an entitlement mentality with God? Am I so used to a relatively pain-free, relatively trial-free existence where I enjoy prosperity and security so that when God may choose to send hardship into my life, is my entitlement mentality betrayed by my own anger and self-pity? Am I prepared, are you prepared for difficulties in your marriage, for unexpected rebellion from your children? from trials and and travesties within your financial and career situation? Are we ready for judgment upon our nation? A nation that splurges with an entitlement indulgence. Are we prepared for a failed monetary system? For the American dream turning into a nightmare as consequences to the gluttony and the indulgence that our debt-addicted culture has left us in. Friends, we have to admit at the foot of the cross that the only thing that we are entitled to is God's holy wrath. The only thing God owes us is judgment. You and I are not worthy of his favor. We have not earned any of the benefits and the blessings that he has freely chosen to give us in Christ Jesus. Friends, you and I don't deserve grace. It is a gift freely offered through the one who alone is entitled to our eternal worship and adoration. Well, the probing judgments of Amos' prophecy also expose for us self-righteousness. We see this in verse 14. In the mentioning of false altars at Bethel, it was at Bethel that the forefather Jacob first met the Lord and saw the glorious vision of the stairway leading up to heaven. It was to Bethel that a much humbled and broken Jacob hobbled, returning his family, having put away their household gods to set up an altar and worship the Lord at Bethel. And sadly, it was also at Bethel, that Israel's first king, Jeroboam, set up a calf idol to prevent the people from the north from returning to Jerusalem to worship the way God had commanded them to worship. These people who failed to obey, who failed to honor the commands of the Lord to pursue a righteousness that was alone mediated through the proper sacrifice at Jerusalem. Sacrifices that ultimately point them to Christ. Chose in their self-righteousness to offer their own sacrifices, according to their own design, to make themselves feel justified before their God. And likewise, we advance that situation to our situation On this side of the cross, people who refuse to embrace the alien righteousness of Christ and presume upon their own self-righteousness, whether it's through religious works, whether it's through their own devised moral standards, whether it's by comparing 
oneself with those who are less virtuous. Or perhaps the the broad veneer presuming that God forgives us simply because he is love, but but is not a holy God who, who demands sacrifice or faith and obedience in response to the only way of salvation that he has provided for mankind. Friends, we have to come clean and acknowledge that all false altars will be smashed and destroyed on the day of judgment. That the judgment that fell upon Israel was a a foreshadowing of the great judgment to come. When all idols will be put down, when all altars will be destroyed, where Christ will reign as judge. The Lord Almighty, who offers asylum and refuge to those who will surrender all claims, who will give up all rights, who will acknowledge that he alone is righteous and justifies those who put their trust in him alone for salvation. Well, thirdly, lastly, of these probing judgments, we see the issue of self-sufficiency in the last verse, verse 15. I believe this is revealed in the message of Amos, that God will tear down the luxury homes, the mansions, and the the couches of Samaria that are mentioned back in verse 11. These, once again, are a people who enjoyed tremendous prosperity, had amassed great fortunes, and rather than express humble gratitude before the Lord, they were arrogant, dismissing the judgment of God as, uh, as fables. And trusting in their own securities. Proverbs 11.4 says that wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. God cannot be bought. We cannot pay off our judgment. The debt is too high. Only Jesus can pay that great debt. Only through Christ and his righteousness can we stand before the living God. We merit nothing but stand in his all-sufficient grace as we await that great day of judgment. Well, this passage we've considered is grim. It's a hard passage. It was a hard passage for me to study this week, to kind of grapple with this, this, uh, this overwhelming message of judgment. But I believe that we do find this glimmer of hope, this promise of preservation, even in the grim image that's offered us in verse 12. There's an illusion here of a remnant of people who will pass through God's severe mercy. Now, as we've already mentioned, Amos was a shepherd. And as a shepherd, he was well aware of the dangers that faced the sheep and the keepers of the sheep. We're all, many, many of us are no doubt aware, familiar with the tale of David, who, uh, whom the Lord saved from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear when he rescued the sheep from their clutches. Well, reali- realistically, most shepherds and hired hands were not as skillful nor as courageous as David. Many of them would have to let the predator get away with at least one sheep in order to protect the rest of the flock. And as the standard was in those days, if you were a hired hand and a lion or a predator took away a sheep, your obligation was to bring back some of the remains, perhaps a leg bone, perhaps a piece of an ear to show the owner of the sheep that you were not negligent in losing the sheep, 
but you did what you could to protect them and bring back evidence that a predator had attacked. This very grim image is clearly illustrating the exile of the northern tribes of Israel. Samaria would be mauled and completely destroyed by the invading Assyrians. There would be complete annihilation. And though I think the the commentaries are not consistent in this message, I think there, there perhaps is an illusion here of the promise of a remnant who will be spared, the people who will be saved even in the midst of great devastation. In fact, historically we know that many people from the northern tribes did flee to the south and take up refuge and enjoy protection in Judah for several generations before Judah also suffered uh, the similar judgments at the hands of the Babylonians. Well, we also see that the, the theme of Amos at the very end of the book, we see the, uh, the prophecy and message of God, who would restore David's fallen tent and bring back the exiles from the lands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And even though the, this message of hope promises a remnant, it promises a restoration after exile, we know from the New Testament, We know from Christ and the apostles that the ultimate hope that the Old Testament prophets were alluding to was not just return from exile, but the coming of a shepherd prophet who would bring complete healing and restoration, not just to Israel, but to all of the nations. The zeal of the shepherd boy David was only a glimpse of the good shepherd who would come and rescue his people from the clutches of sin and death. This great shepherd king would defeat our ultimate enemy, not the Babylonians, not the Romans, not our debt problems, but our problem of sin and the threat of death and eternal judgment. This great shepherd king would preserve a multitude and save them from the lion's mouth. And in the great ironic twist of God's redemptive plans, this was a shepherd who became a weak little lamb, laying down his life, suffering the punishment of the sheep. Jesus surrendered to the claw and teeth marks of sin and death. He submitted himself to the Father's wrath that you and I might be spared the just judgments that we deserve. Yes, Jesus laid down his life for the sheep, only to take it up again in victory. And as we already mentioned, that this message to ancient Israel is a foreshadowing of the great judgment that is yet to come. We find this all throughout Scripture. And we can go back to these episodes to kind of get a glimpse of what, of what judgment means for us. That we can imagine the people in Noah's Ark worried, stressed, and fretful, wondering whether or not the boat walls could hold back the torrents swirling around them in a flood-ridden world. We can imagine the, the, the fear and anxiety of the parents of Israel who are leading their families through great walls of water across the Red Sea, across the Jordan River. We see in the Lord Jesus himself on the night of his betrayal, dropping great drops of blood, stressed in his preparation for facing judgment 
in abandonment upon the dreaded Roman cross. Jesus was condemned. Jesus took up our condemnation that we need not fear like the disciples who were fretting on the Sea of Galilee in the storm. We need not fret that the levees will fail us, that God's judgment will overwhelm us, but rather we understand through Christ that there is no longer any dammed up reservoir of God's wrath. It has all been consumed for God's people. Jesus has taken all of the punishment for us. We need not fear that the levees will break. We need not fear that the dam will fail. It has all been accomplished for us. We are secure. We are free to live joyfully as God's holy people. Just a week ago, Friday, about 30 minutes after dark, I was driving my family along Route 30 back from King of Prussia. And as we were passing through the town of Gap, I, a, a man came running across the highway. And only by me slamming on the brakes and by him, uh, by him making some quick maneuvering did I avoid sending this guy to the hospital or, or more probably to the morgue. I don't know what he was running for, or what he was running from, and I didn't stop to, to ask him. But like this man, there are people in our culture running scared. That they're running and fleeing. They know that sin is a problem. They know that there is judgment coming. But they're like this man running from one danger to something worse. And they know not where to flee. Friends, you and I are called You and I, who who know where to go, are called to be messengers. To use this low-tech warning system of person-to-person relationship, of sharing the simple message of the gospel, to warn people of the coming wrath, to encourage them, yes, your impulse is right, it is time to flee. But don't run and get yourself tangled up in more danger. Run to the cross. Flee to Christ Jesus. Find higher ground at the foot of the cross, the only place that is a safe refuge from the coming tsunami of God's almighty wrath. Our good shepherd, who has saved us from the lion's mouth, who endured the great punishment and the pain, he is the chastised chosen one. And he is the one who was ripped for us by his wounds. We are healed and made whole again. He is calling us forward. And we have this great promise that we we will indeed enter the glorious land. Our exile will be over eventually. That Christ will return. And we will face no more warnings. No more threats. No more dangerous. There will be no more need for warning systems when the great kingdom of God is established in the new heavens and the new earth. Until that time, let us take up refuge. Let us warn others and let us praise our great God and King who has provided us the way of escape through our Lord Jesus Christ. O come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let us pray. Father, We have considered a dreadful 
and frightening passage tonight. But we thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have one who has consumed your wrath in our place. We have one who has rescued us. We thank you that we know where to flee to higher ground. That you have opened up our ears to heed your warning sign. I pray for everyone here tonight that they would be safe and sound and secure in your loving arms and help us to be your messengers, to spread the good word, to warn others that they might find refuge in Jesus. In his name we do pray. Amen.